Good morning. We continue this morning in our new preaching series on the New Testament book of Hebrews. We have come to chapter 2, verse 1. We hear lots of warnings given to us about all sorts of things. Uh, warnings that we receive with varying degrees of, of weight and, and consequence. Uh, we see a sign that is on a, a fence, beware of dog, and we wonder, well, how big is that dog? <laughs> you know, do I need to be afraid or not? Uh, we hear the bell at a train crossing, and some people are actually debating, can I, can I get there before the train or not? And indeed, last week, someone uh, somewhere in the country tried, and their car lost. All sorts of warnings, some that we take seriously, some that we disregard. Uh, we hear, wear your seatbelt, speed in is radar enforced, get a vaccine, don't get a vaccine. And we hear these and we have various levels of trust in the warning. And so there are all sorts of level of compliance to the warnings that we hear. But in the passage before us, we will see the one warning that carries more weight than any warning you will ever hear. Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The implication of, of the passage is that paying attention to this warning is not optional. Hebrews began the very first words of this book uh, tell us that God has spoken. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then the chapter goes on to describe the, the greatness of his son, more magnificent even than the angels, which brings us to the, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard 
from God who speaks. And in these days, he speaks to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are warned to pay attention. And an example is given of the seriousness of the warning in verse 2, which says, the message declared by angels is reliable, or it also could read is binding. And every transgression, every disobedience received a just retribution. This uh, example of the message given by angels is actually a reference to the Mosaic covenant that came on Mount Sinai uh, to the people of God uh, through Moses. And we, we don't read in the giving of the law that angels were involved, but there are actually several passages in the Old and New Testaments that uh, associate that somehow the angelic servants of God were involved with the giving of his covenant to the people. And so this is a reference to that. And then through the rest of this book, that reference to the Mosaic covenant and then the work of Christ being greater, that will be amplified as we continue to work through the book. But think of the context where we're in. It speaks of the fact that there is this reliableness of even what angels share from God to us. And then we heard last week through Paul's message that Christ is far superior than the angels. So the, the point being made here is that if the word of God shared through angels is binding, we must hear it then what of the word given to us by the Son of God himself? If we cannot break God's word that came through the old covenant and through angels without the judgment of God, then we cannot ignore and neglect the word of Christ without the judgment of God. Well, if you're thinking, well, how much leeway do we have? Well, the answer is none. None whatsoever. Uh, th that's what verse 2 says. Every transgression, every disobedient receives its just retribution. And rightly so, because we're not speaking of the laws of men, which may be wise or, or maybe not. Laws that may be unjust or unevenly given. The, the law of God is as perfect as God is. And it's exercised in the perfect wisdom of God. And so to ignore him puts us in a situation uh, that really is hopeless because we will rightly receive the justice that it deserves when we ignore the person of God and what he has to say. 
This is not an exaggerated warning here in Hebrews. It is a serious and a, a clear biblical reality. We have this statement made in the beginning of the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against. What is the wrath of God revealed against? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All unrighteousness comes under the judgment of God. That is why what we have before us is the greatest warning you will ever hear. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? God has provided a way to save those who are guilty. If we ignore that, if we neglect it, there is no hope when we reject the salvation God has given, when we recognize that God takes his word and our obedience to it seriously, without exception. So when verse 3 says, how shall we escape? Uh, we're meant to really take that and inwardly ask our own souls, how would I escape? We're not talking about human reach, human ability to pay attention, to, to enforce the law. We're speaking of what God will do. What excuse will you give when you stand before him? Where can you hide? Who is going to come and help you? Who's going to defend you? Who's going to keep back the hand of God? There's no bravado when we stand before the Lord Jesus. There's no snarky comebacks. And all of our assertions we've made, oh, well, this is what God should do or God shouldn't do that, all of that will die in our mouths. No crowd of friends cheering us on. Just you. Before the holy God, and you will be fully aware that you are guilty. And if you wait until the moment you stand before him, there is now no hope. The neglect of God is your most serious danger. It's not even close. Have you sat here or in other churches, services for years hearing and just kind of let it pass you by, not really ever taking it seriously? If so, your soul's in peril. 
Did you grow up in the church believing because your parents believed and you heard it and what you heard, you received, you thought it was true, but now as you've gotten a little older, you're thinking that, well, I think I know better. That's an eternal mistake. Do you think that Jesus has well, some value at some times? But the idea that he reigns over everything and that you are accountable to him in all of life, well, that seems a bit much. If that's how you're thinking, you've swallowed a fatal lie. Or do you say, I believe in God. In fact, there was a time I prayed a prayer, I remember years ago. I prayed a prayer to accept Christ. And yet, you do not seriously follow the word of God. Then according to the authority of God, according to the word before us, you are lost. If we neglect the word of God, we are lost. And the weight of this is meant to stop us, to cause us to think. And so do not, do not in wanting to, to get all of our attention to what you feel is coming, what you know is coming. There, there are words of grace. Let us not run so quickly to grace. We do not allow the weight of this to get our attention so that we see how desperately we need grace. This is a grave and heavy warning. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? But there is this bright hope embedded in the warning. For the warning is to get our attention and to remind us there is a great salvation. A salvation to receive rather than neglect. A salvation to take seriously rather than to push off. There is the salvation given to us by the glorious Christ we have already been introduced to and have heard. For it is, we see in verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ himself who has declared the salvation that he brings. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. The Lord Jesus himself speaks to us of the salvation he brings. Jesus came declaring himself as the Son of God, as the bread of life, as the light of the world, as the door to God, as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus came declaring 
Not only the greatness of his person, but the greatness of his title and purpose and why he came. Jesus was not bashful about this. Jesus was not shy of declaring the greatness of his position, of his unique nature, because Jesus knows we need a salvation. He knows our desperation. That's why the eternal God entered flesh and forever became man so he could save us. Jesus declared the reason why he came. It was to save. In Luke 19, we have a man who had spent his life cheating people. Yet when, when he met Jesus, his heart was changed and he spoke of repentance and his desire to make right all that he had done in cheating people. And Jesus said this to him and to those who are watching and listening, today salvation has come to this house for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to find those who needed great salvation. He came to save those who need a great salvation. Jesus is how God saves us. For God, who must be faithful to himself, he, he must be faithful to his character. And he is perfectly just and righteous. So any unrighteousness, God must deal with it. God can't deal with some acts of sin and injustice and ignore others. He doesn't have a sliding scale. There is no bell curve. God rightly deals with all unrighteousness. He must or he would deny his own being. So here we are, all of us knowing if we look at our own hearts, we're all sinners. If you're not sure, just ask the person who came with you. They'll quickly let you know. How many times has someone been angry at you, offended at you, bothered by you? And that's just by what they've experienced. How many times have you been aware of what people don't know and if they did you might leave here in shame if it was put on the screens. How much self-centeredness, how, much, how many times have you yelled at someone for cutting you off, and then when you do it to someone else, what are you mad about? Our scale, when it's against us, it's horrible. When we do it, they should understand. And into this, God sees the utter mess. That generation after generation, we're not able to fix our sin problem. We can't stop being sinners. 
We've been on this planet for a long time. Does it look like it's getting better to you? Is the human soul in better shape? Are people more loving? Is there more kindness around us than there was before? For all of our advancements, all we're getting is more comfortable living, but the soul is not improving. And God who created us in his image with great love in his heart sees our hopelessness and he sent his son. Jesus came. He didn't just appear and look like a man. He was born of a virgin, God and man, forever. God bound himself to humanity forever so that he could go to a cross and as a man die, but first pulling our guilt upon himself. So he died guilty of our sin. And he paid in full because the wrath of the Father fell on him for our sin. And Jesus died paying for it and then rose from the grave in demonstration. The payment has been made in full. There's no more debt to be paid. It is a great salvation. Who, who can get that? Who, who can receive it? The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible doesn't say, if, if you come to church and you prove yourself over time, there may be hope for you. The Bible says, come and be saved instantaneously, completely, and forever. Trust in Christ. Just confess your sin. Call on him to save you. Call on him to give you faith, and he will save you in that moment forever. It is a great salvation. It is a great salvation that Christ has made and God the Father has verified, yes, Jesus is the one whom I have sent. Verse four, it says, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. We have the voice of God coming and saying to his followers, this is my beloved son, listen to him. But it says here that God bore witness by signs and wonders, which are, is an expression used of the works that Jesus did while he was in this world. We have an example of this in Luke chapter 5. A paralyzed man is brought to Jesus by his friends. And we see Luke 5.20, when Jesus... Saw their faith. He said to the man, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The teachers of the law and the proud religious law keepers thought to themselves, Who is this man who speaks as if he's God? Who can forgive sins but God only? 
Jesus knew what they were thinking. He said to them, why do you think this way in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk so that you may know that the Son of Man has the right and power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who could not move his body, I say to you, get up, take your bed, and go to your home. And at once the sick man got up in front of them. He took his bed and went to his home, thanking God. Jesus showed by acts of power that when he also spoke of a salvation, of his ability to forgive, that he had the ability to do that. Not only has Jesus declared his heart and his ability to save, not only has God the Father verified that his son is the one whom he sent to save, but we're told that the Spirit also affirms that faith in Christ saves. Verse four, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, whom he apportions as he wills. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes this salvation true for us. You don't have to make it work. You don't have to make yourself saved. You don't even have to build up in yourself enough faith. The Spirit of God gives faith. The Holy Spirit makes salvation that Christ has made possible. He makes it yours. He is the one who unites what Christ has done with your situation. The power of God, the Spirit does that. That is why we can be so confident that if we sincerely come to Christ, salvation will work for us because it's the Spirit who accomplishes it in us. And then he makes himself known by the transforming power we are born again of the Spirit, which means uh, God has given us a new heart and new ways of thinking and living begin to flow forth. A new appreciation for God, love for God, eyes opening and we see Christ and his glory and his goodness and we wonder how could I not have done this earlier? Now, notice, again, the wording used. The Holy Spirit, by the gifts he gives to people, is affirming that this salvation by Christ is true. Now, the gifts that are given, what, what does the Bible say about them? How does the Bible define them? We we see it's a simple statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. There is this definition in the Bible telling us what are the gifts that the Spirit apportions to us. It says simply, to each, meaning each believer, we see in the, the context, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The Holy Spirit 
comes to dwell in every believer and he gives us, he enables us, he manifests himself in ways in which now our life is used to bless others. It's not just gifts that we build ourselves up, but we serve and are used by him and so our souls are encouraged. So think through this. As believers, The Spirit gifting us what he's already done. It says to every believer, this is done, every believer receives gifts of the Holy Spirit. And part of why you have gifts of the Spirit is so that your life, as you're involved with the rest of the church, so that you may be a display that the gospel is true. That Jesus does save. And that it is a great salvation. For it takes someone like you and makes your life one of beauty in the hands of God and makes your life blessing to the people of God. And by that he shows his power his graciousness, his love for us to use us, his love for us to be blessing to others. And so as you consider how your life is involved in the life of your fellow brothers and sisters, realize the seriousness that we should have in how we're engaged in the life of the church and how our gifts are used. And you cannot use your gifts for the common good if you're not even with the people of God as they assemble. Or if you're gone so quickly after every service or you attend things so rarely that you're not able to build relationship or people know you or you know them. There's not opportunity for the Spirit of God to use what is in you to bless his people. And so there is in here a call for us to see the part we play. We do not save anyone. But God so loves those that are his. He manifests something of him the wonder of his gospel through us in how we're changed and in how we interact with each other. When we come to Christ, we receive a great salvation. It is a great salvation for God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all Proclaim it, all affirm it, all are committed to it being carried out. The, the divine Godhead is all committed to the gospel being fruitful. It is a, a glorious and great salvation for the wondrous Christ, the one who we have already heard of, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature who upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
who has made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the one who saves that glorious Christ. How wonderful that person came to save you. God did not send angels or strong believers. He sent his son to you to save you. It is a great salvation because it includes all of our sin and guilt being cleansed. It includes the full forgiveness by God of our sin. It includes our soul being transformed by the Spirit of God. It includes him keeping us forever. It includes him empowering our lives to be used. It includes God adopting us as his children, bringing us into his household. It includes him exalting us one day as we stand glorified and perfected with all the saints in heaven. It includes the richness of the grace of God as he says every spiritual blessing given to us through Christ. It is a great salvation. And so again, we are told, we are given this warning, pay attention to this great salvation. What God has proclaimed, we're responsible, we're accountable to it. And if you're sitting tempted to think, yes, I did pay attention. I came to Christ, I belonged to him. So this is, this is a warning for all those people here who haven't done that. I'm paying attention, some of you need to. Well. Look at the words that are given. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. This is a warning for all of us. This is a statement to all of us. It is to those who have never paid attention. But it is also a statement for those who have paid attention, who have trusted in Christ, and he is saying, those of you who have believed still pay closer attention, because none of us, none of us give the full attention that Christ deserves. We all, we all need to be giving more attention, closer attention, fuller devotion, greater love. It is a reminder not that you have to do something more for a better salvation, but this wondrous salvation deserves all the attention we can give so that we do not drift 
from what we say we believe. With a salvation this great, we should want our life to be wholly shaped by it and our heart filled to overflowing with joy in it, faithfulness to it. Does Jesus have your close attention? And how would you answer that question? Because if you would be quick to say, yes, he has it. Well, how? How does he have your attention? What is it that shows each day Christ has your attention? How would you tell that to him? That he has your close attention. Our salvation is entirely wondrous. This is not speaking of burdensome weights to take on. This is calling us to live in what is so worthy and wonderful. So do we obey Christ as if our salvation is wonderful? Do we spend time with him seeing that our relationship with him is wondrous? Do we serve Christ in a way that shows we believe it is a wonderful salvation? Do we engage with other people in ways that show our salvation is the most important thing we have to share and it is wonderful? The realities of Christ and his gospel should dominate our lives. Not, it's not a garnish. It's not the trim. It is the heart. The center touching everything. And we all have currents in life that, that if we're not paying attention will cause us to drift. And those currents are different for us, but we all have currents running through our lives that would lead us to drift as we've talked about in recent weeks. What tends to cause you to drift? Or if you're not attentive, would cause you to drift? Just two areas as we kind of wrap this up and come to a close. Two areas that I think are, are common. The first is when we focus more on what we think God should be doing for us than we do on what God has done for us. When we focus most on what God has done for us, our heart is filled with thankfulness. When we're giving more attention to what God should do that I want, and we're, we're filled with expectations of how we think God should perform. And that never, that never leads us well. So what is more dominant in your heart? 
the awareness of the grandeur of what Christ has done or is what you think God should do more for you bigger to you? How you weigh those has a huge impact. One other area. And this particularly for families. And that is busyness that fills your life and your schedule with so much activity that those things, if you're asked, that you would say are important get pushed aside. And so spending time with your family in the house of God gets pushed aside or being a part of those activities that enable you to be built up with other families and in helping to disciple and, and bring your children more closely to Christ, that, that gets pushed aside. Or there's no time to read the Bible with your family or even pray together. There, everything's a rush and a blur. And we would say God is first and he is worthy, but busyness causes our life to not look that way. And I say this as, as someone who is a parent who walked through that. I say it just as a, a person. I say it in love for you. But if those things continue, if attention to God starts getting pushed aside for busyness or focus on what God should be doing, you will drift in ways that dishonor Christ and will bring heartache to your soul. There's no way around that because the the alternative to your heart being full with the things of God is your heart becoming full with something else. And whatever that else is, is infinitely inferior and cannot fulfill. It cannot sustain. No one knows better what is good for us than God. So let's pay attention to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come, we come asking for ourselves and one another that there would be a clarity in every heart here of our need for the salvation that Jesus brings. We ask for a new conviction for those who have pushed it off or have ignored it, that you would reach into their souls and cause them to see their need, how desperate it is and how worthy Christ is. Help each one of us to see the grandeur of the gospel, that it is worthy of our lives to be given to it. And where we're drifting, where we're neglecting it, may we see it's an unworthy exchange. May we be encouraged and freshly renewed in the goodness of following you wholeheartedly. 
Lord, give us grace for this. You know we're weak. You know our struggles. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.